I think what's what's become clearer, certainly in the last few years, as competition in the game industry has really stepped up, is that there's a fundamental difference between a great game and a great game business. You know, you could be super lucky, you your game is an instant hit, it's resonating with users, but for when that's not the case, uh, or even when you just want to take your game growth to the next level, that's where we come in. So we've developed a really incredible platform that's designed to make you as powerful and as capable as possible in growing your game, whether that's growing your game revenue or growing your user base. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, Marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppSlyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppSlyer's latest product, the Incrementality Solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppSlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With, with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest you head out to appsliers.com. Hey, everybody. Today we have myself and guest host Eric Crest, and we are joined by Chris Petrovic, who has who was most recently the SVP and head of corporate strategy, M&A, and business development at Zynga. He's overseen a lot of high-profile deals, which we'll go into, such as the acquisition of Puzzle Social, Harpon, Gram Games, Small Giant, Pete Games, and most recently, Rollick Games. Prior to Zynga, Chris was at a number of places, but also most notably headed corp dev and biz dev at Kabam. In our conversation today, Eric and I will be speaking to Chris about his career in gaming, the role of corporate strategy, M&A, and business development. And our goal is to give the audience a better understanding of how big publishers think about M&A specifically in the future of the games industry in general. And I'm sure the many lessons learned and insights from Chris based on his great experience. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having me, guys. So I work with Chris at Kabam. I had the pleasure of traveling with him and uh, part of uh, helping boil the ocean back in the early, relatively early days of mobile. Um, and I think the best trip I ever took was the one that, the Gamescon. The only time I ever went to Gamescon was with uh, Chris. <laughs> we met with a bunch of very, very arrogant European developers thinking that they were going to be the bee's knees um, of, of development. And all of them actually crashed and burned. And I'm not going to actually name any names, but uh, <laughs> it was pretty Come funny. We're <laughs> as positive as ever. Just like I, I know. I, I was just thinking about it. Like, it was a really fun trip. I mean, it was really stinky. And they, everything about Gamescon is true. It's totally stinky. And it's way too many young kids that don't shower or don't use deodorant or whatever but it was like it was a sight to behold right it was a pretty epic event so yeah, it's ea was, on steroids yeah i mean yeah. sorry e3 e3 EA. yeah oh for sure it's yeah. completely different anyway so chris i i mean i know what chris does because i've actually done it i did it at ea and i i did a little bit work on uh, kabam but what i would love to hear i think for people that are in the audience is that exactly what ex do you do like give us your background your career and then like what exactly corp dev is all about like at a high yeah. level right and uh, i'm glad you're asking there. me this question chris because one of the things that i uh deal with all the time mostly internally at companies is trying to educate people to delineate between the differences of corp dev and biz dev and it's always so hard because they're two uh they're, they're two separate uh functions but they're they sound really similar uh and so people tend to conflate the two quite a bit so uh, using Zynga as an example, so corporate strategy and M and A were to me two sides of the same coin. Um, corporate strategy is the the exercise of looking into the proverbial crystal ball to figure out where the company, uh, where the market is going, and where a company needs to go relative to to the the future trends that you're seeing. And obviously, M and A is a way to uh, 
a tool to use to uh, to execute on a corporate strategy, especially when you're thinking about uh, things like consolidation and scale and all of the things that we're seeing in mobile that's becoming increasingly important or in gaming in general. Uh, and then business development is more of a strategic partnership commercial exercise where you're doing you know, publishing deals in China, you're doing licensing deals with Hollywood IP, you're negotiating uh, uh, service contracts with uh, folks like Epic and Unity, uh, things of that nature. So uh, very transactional, very outward facing, very forward looking, uh, and all really fun. Awesome. So how did you get started? Like, what, what's uh, your career track? Gosh, so I started in, in consumer internet back in the late 90s, where I got bit by the internet bug and decided to become an entrepreneur, not knowing what the hell I was doing um, uh, down in LA at the time and, and was part of a few startups, uh, none of which are of any consequence today and haven't been for a while. Uh, then went into venture capital for a while. Uh, I, I became an EIR of sorts uh, at the VC firm that invested in my two startups. Um, that was right around the time that the bubble burst for those of us that are old enough to remember the early 2000s. Uh, and then went on to become a, a digital digital leader, so to speak, for lack of a better term, but a, a, a you know, digital executive at Analog Company. So I started at American Greetings, uh, was the head of uh, a BD for the digital group there, uh, then moved to, oh gosh, from uh, from there so long ago, went to Playboy, uh, was VP of digital there for four years. Nice. Plus years. And that's where I first got into, that's where I first got into gaming. So we can talk about that later. Wait, uh, Playboy, then, hey, don't, don't like just completely... <laughs> Go gloss over that, man. Playboy? Were you at the mansion? I was many times, many, but all for work purposes. Wait, were you married at the time? I was. And my wife, ironically, uh, worked at Maxim uh, <laughs> at the same time. So, Oh, my God. So you're, you're just surrounded by beautiful women? That was the one tough. at home. That's all I remember. I, I, I got it. I got it. <laughs> but, man, Playboy Mansion and everything. That's awesome. What a way yeah. to get us started in, in gaming. That was. I remember when they were Playboy Enterprises, right? Where, where, right. Like trying to license and do things in game. Yeah, and there was like there was a Playboy Mansion game. We licensed our IP for in-game integrations, right. you know, right. uh, for for uh, a bunch of games, and then did a Facebook game, um, and then from there went to GameStop and uh, started and headed their digital ventures group. And that's when really things got exciting on the gaming front in terms of deploying capital. You know, we grew revenue by half a billion dollars during my time there on the digital side. So you know, really started getting enamored with with gaming and 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 just architecting the digital strategy for a retailer that they ultimately did not follow, um, which is why probably they're, they find themselves where they are today. Well, okay, so here's the irony. So when I, when I was at Kabam, I was talking to him about GameStop and part of my, uh, my, my negative or bearish thesis on GameStop was just the realization that the management team just had no clue what to do with digital. And the fact that they basically let you go and kind of like divested all their activities in digital because it just wasn't part of their lexicon. And so... Uh, meanwhile, they're talking to Wall Street and saying, oh, yeah, we have this digital strategy. We're going to move into digital. And I'm like, dude, the reality is just not fit, mit, mit matching up. Anyway, go ahead. Continue. Yeah, no, I mean, Chris, you and I talked about this when we were at Kabam. It was the classic. I mean, that was classic textbook innovators dilemma right yeah, there. Uh, right. And, and they knew they had to do it. They, they did a little bit more than pay lip service to it. But when the rubber met the road and they needed to make the investments, ultimately what they would talk about is, well, why would I invest here that has a 10-year terminal value when I can open a store and get 30% Kager, you know, in, year over year? So Right. And they were so freaking good at brick and mortar. Like yes. they fucking crushed it. Like they, they, they there's no better operators at the, you know, the, the original management team at that. So True. anyway. All right. Then you came after your frustration at GameStop, and then that that's where we then I saw the light and decided to go into pure play, uh, you know, pure play uh, game development uh and and Told myself that I would take a break from being in the in the public companies because I had done three in a row, uh, and then found myself at Kabam and had the good fortune of working with you and Kevin and Kent and a whole bunch of other great folks, and were able to do some great things around acquisition and licensing, and ultimately a great exit for Netmarble and and the Kabam team and shareholders. And then, as that was uh, in its mid to final stages, I would say of percolating that that transaction, I, I got a outreach from from Zynga, and and as you know, Frank was joining the the. CEO uh, role there from his board position uh, was really enamored by the opportunity to to take a swing at turning the company around. And as he, as he told me in our first meeting, when we chatted about it, he said, "Look, you can't fall off the floor. So let's come on this ride and see what we can do." And and for me as as a deal guy at the time, what was really attractive was just the 
you know, the amount of cash that the company had on hand, which is mainly what they were valued for, plus the, the, the value of the building that they owned at the time. So for me, that was the ultimate access to liquidity, you know, knowing also that the building was, was going to be in play at some point and being able to deploy that. Uh, and, and it really helped solidify uh, my, my belief in the ability to turn around because Frank w was really, really certain about inorganic growth, uh, i.e. M&A being a key part of it. So to be front and center and get the opportunity to do that, fast forward four and a half, five years later, and, and there's just been some great outcomes. Yeah, I think Frank gave me the same pitch when he was on the board of Zynga and you know what his strategy would be for the company. And I think you, both you and I, I was his hook, line, and sinker, right? I, I, I believe in Frank. I think what he does. And so, like, actually, that's kind of the next question. It's like, what do you think Frank did that that kind of turned this company around? I mean, the stock was at, like, $2.50 for a long time, and now it's... buck eighty-eight when he and I joined. Yeah, right. Wow. Um, and so, I mean, I know what he did, but I, I, I want to, from your perspective, like, first of all, like, structurally, but then also from an M&A strategy, you know, he basically yeah. unleashed the Kraken, right? And you're out there buying all kinds of crap, good crap, sorry, you know what I mean? <laughs> but like, what were the keys yeah. to the success that you that you saw? And what did Frank really kind of enable you to do um, that you couldn't do at Kabam, for instance? Well, I mean, one one was just the sheer scale, right? Yeah. So, you know, at Kabam, the, 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 you know, while there was liquidity and, and, and cash available to do M&A, nowhere, it was one-tenth the size of what Zynga had. So, you know, at some point, you know, having access to that much, even if you don't succeed on everyone and you succeed on some or most, then you have kind of the VC private equity model and it's still a success. Um, but I would say getting back to your question, you know, first of all, it, it helped to have somebody in that seat that actually understood free to play mobile. So I think that was number one. When you look at, you know, his predecessor, there was a huge difference in capabilities with Frank having overseen mobile at EA during the, 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 the tail end of his tenure there. I think it also helped to have an executive in Frank that was able to have pattern recognition of what it, it feels like and looks like to go from high to low and back up again, which EA had done during his time there. And, and you know, and as we talk about, as we talked about a lot in management meetings, there were only so many finite things that are possible that can go wrong and that need to be fixed in a gaming company when things are not going well versus going well. And so having that pattern recognition of what works uh, both when things were going well and when needed fixing really helped. And then he brought in, you know, a whole cadre of his former EA uh, uh, peers uh, to help him uh, and, and be part of the management team to, to, to craft the turnaround. And so they, you know, they identified great franchises that had been under leveraged in Zynga Poker and Words with Friends. And you guys know that the, the, the term forever franchise was something that he coined early on. And it has proven to be super relevant and important for companies in our category and beyond in terms of continued success and looking at the business more as an annuity than a hits driven business, knowing that you always have to create new games, but you have that hedge with really dependable, stable revenues coming off of longstanding games and franchises and doubling down in that, culling down the number of new game starts, diversifying the, 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 uh, the talent base globally, you know, and away from the Bay area, all of the things that are not necessarily rocket science, but take somebody that's aware enough, of these uh, necessities to actually execute and bring good people around them to, to, to help. And Chris, maybe I could ask in terms of the strategy when it comes to M&A, because it seems like after you came to Zynga, that if you look at the, the M&A strategy prior to your arrival, it was more, I mean, the success rate just wasn't quite there since after you came, but it also seemed like there was a shift from earlier stage companies and betting on earlier companies to later stage companies. But when you came in, was there a conscious kind of shift in terms of how you evaluate and the kinds of companies that you guys are going after? Yeah, I would say a couple of things uh, that were apparent to me, uh, you know, and, and to your point, one of the first things I did was go through and do a historical teardown of the M&A that Zynga had done from the time it really started getting aggressive in 2010. Wow. Yikes, that must have been ugly. Uh, up to 2016. <laughs> and, and, and to your, to your, you know, to your point, Joe, there wasn't a, a real positive, you know, return on investment picture there. Um, <laughs> okay, so, can I, can I just pause you for a moment here? Okay, there's two things that he's already done that make me crazy a little bit is uh, Mr. Chris is that he is so freaking nice, right? The way he actually positions things is the reason that he stays in his roles, right? So when he said the predecessors of, Je of, of Frank Jabot were not, didn't understand mobile, right? He said it in such a nice way, right? What, what I would say is that 
Pincus and Matrix had no business running a free-to-play mobile company because they had no idea what they were doing, right? And so I just wanted to, I, 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 I've said this about you before on the podcast, Mr. Petrovic is the ni- really, really nice guy. And he says he's very diplomatic about what he does. And that's what makes him good at what he does. Anyway, sorry, continue. Grass, thank you. You're like the yin to my yang on this. This is amazing. <laughs> um, so where were we? Sorry. Oh, we're talking, we're talking about the m Yeah, so... Uh, so one of the other things that I noticed when I got here was that the, there wasn't uh, any kind of framework around uh, integration philosophy or approach. And for those that are in M&A or have been here, experienced M&A, we know that the vast majority of acquisitions tend to not work out. In fact, there's the traditional 80-20 rule, which is 20% of your M&A ends up driving 80% of your value in kind of as a base case of goodness. And, and so... Starting from scratch, one of the first things I focused on was building that framework uh, alongside with the management team that would actually be responsible for uh, a large part part of the integration, but really just creating a framework where we were really clear and transparent and honest with both ourselves and the the the, the companies that we were looking to bring into the family about what how things would look kind of post. Um, and so, you know, uh, and, and then I think third is just a disciplined approach to looking at things. I think if you look at the history of Zynga, you know, the, the, the prior M&A teams had a reputation for being very aggressive in terms of going after targets, engaging with them, getting data, and then not following through. And I, I, I really spent yeah. the first 12 to 18 months of my time at Zynga when I was meeting with developers, apologizing for the action, uh, actions of my predecessor <laughs> teams. Um, and so reestablishing a positive reputation, which actually, I, I, as, as Eric alluded to, I, I pride myself on, on having that in the industry, because as we all know, it is a small industry and there's no need to be a dick uh, and, 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 and you know, not be successful at the same time. So um, you know, laying that groundwork, having the management team out in front of developers all over the world, telling and retelling the story about what we see as the opportunity, and then actually doing what we say. And so I think that led to us and you, Joe, you listed the acquisitions. They started off small because we needed to prove ourselves as, an, as a new organization and as an M and A team that we could actually do an acquisition on a small scale. And then, you know, you know, the ones you listed. It's not a, it's not a coincidence, by the way, that every deal that you listed up until Rollick was sequentially larger in value, right? And so we started getting permission to do larger deals, to deploy more capital, and as we showed success to our board, to our investors, to the street. Um, to, to banks that wanted to, to provide us capital, it became easier to, to do those things. Uh, and so, you know, the, the discussion around buying Peak was no more or less intense than the discussion around buying Puzzle Social, for example, uh, because moment in time where we were from an experience perspective was completely different. And so just having the framework, having the discipline, having the management expertise, and having the clarity of vision all really helped without feeling like you were missing out. I think back in the in the early days, there was a lot of FOMO going on. Have to buy, have to buy. You know, you know, uh, uh, um, got to you know, got to get this target, got to get that target, and then just fill the funnel and then just figure it out. And 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 that's really not the way to do it. For us, it was a a long relationship building process. I always make the analogy to a marriage. We dated for quite a long time with every one of our uh, acquisitions that became part of the family, and knowing that we would be in this for the long term, that it wasn't just a quick hit for them or for us, which is super important. Uh, and, and and it just from there it just becomes uh, much more simple and straightforward. And, and your approach seemed to be the city state model thing, where you just basically let them run their own thing. Is that still true? Because that was Frank's philosophy even at EA. You know, yeah, I, I think I think that's that was true for us, especially as you got you know studios that were at more scale. So you know the, the exceptions I will say are, for example, when we acquired the board and card studio Peak. That was a that was a studio an asset acquisition out of a company, so they became a Zynga branded studio on day mm-hmm. one. But that fit the mold of that particular acquisition uh, uh, deal or framework, I should say. Whereas the others, like Graham and Small Giant and Peak, you know, they have already demonstrated success in their own right. And our mantra to them was: we want to create an environment where one plus one can equal three for you and for us and our shareholders. Which means that you do what you do. Take a look at all of our menu of options that we have in terms of capabilities, technologies, uh, you know, uh, employees, um, plumbing, just call it company plumbing. And you, as, as the new member of the family, can opt into any, all, or none of the things on this menu. And we're not going to force you. We're not going to require We're not going to rebrand you. We're not going to take away your identity or culture. 
All we're going to do is just observe and provide assistance on an opt-in basis whenever you need it. And then when things get tough, which we all know in gaming, there are times when there's a code red or you know something breaks or there's a there's a consumer issue. Then we kind of lean in a little bit and say, how can we work together to solve this issue and then extricate ourselves as soon as the, the problem is solved? So it was a really good, harmonious uh, city-state relationship to your point. Yeah. And so to be clear, this was this was by design, right? This was kind of part of the framework of what yes. you were doing. So that 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 that's what's I think important from a yeah, perspective of EA guys, they they will admittedly say that they learned a lot from how not to do things at, the, at <laughs> a lot of the acquisitions there and how right. you got you got Bromberg, you got what um Frank, uh, you got Jer, you got BK, you know, you yeah, got yeah, Matt yeah. Ryan, the chief people officer, right, you got right. a whole, whole so, bunch of folks. Dude, it's like he just rebuilt EA Rabbit Shores, you know, it's like unbelievable what Frank did with that. Um, yeah, I, I was the only until our 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 uh Chief legal officer came in uh, from Tesla. I was the only non-EA person and uh, is part of the new senior management team. So I felt like an honorary member of that mob. Right. Uh, just wait, wait, hold on one second. To be, to the extent that you can answer this question, and if you can't, you can't, right? So the initial Graham and small giant deals have these absolutely massive earnouts that continue to drag profitability for like, for, for as people look at it from a gap basis, right? Um, even though most Wall Street analysts ignore it and, and look at it as, as they should. Well, okay. You can say that, Mr. Petrovic, but <laughs> the cash flows are, are going straight to these acquisitions in like insane numbers. Now, clearly these things were negotiated in a way that were not... Um, not as thoughtful, perhaps, as they should have been, and and it seems that the peak acquisition you guys eliminated most of the earnout stuff. Is that was that kind of considered not a a in retrospect was that were those deals considered not very good negotiated deals? Or no, I think they're tremendously negotiated deals, and I'm saying that trying to separate <laughs> myself from being involved in that, and I say it because of the following: the one of the other philosophies that we took with these deals, unlike what you may see in prior M&A transactions and gaming or outside is that we didn't want to set up a framework where we were gaming the system such that we knew that the, the new addition to the family would never get their earnout because you don't want to set up an environment where you're already disincentivized as a leader of a studio, knowing that you don't have any light at the end of the tunnel. So we set up these frameworks in such a way that if they hit and exceeded mutually agreed upon benchmarks, which we were super happy with, we were more than happy to pay them. And despite gap basis, non-gap basis, the profitability, the health of the business, because these are just temporal things that will eventually wane over a number of years because earnouts are not perpetual. And so by the time the earnout is over, you assume that you have a company that's at such a steady state that then you're recouping all of that early investment through the earnout, in addition to the goodness that you got as evidenced by the rise in the stock price since, since the inception of these deals. So to me, these are just temporal necessities to bridge valuation gaps for high growth companies, whereas peak was already at a steady state. The nature of the cap table and what Siddhar and team wanted to do was just to be bought out and allow to you know, continue to operate as they had been. And there was no need to do an earnout because there's no, that, that, that company is not in super high growth mode like small giant was when we acquired them. So they are forever franchise mode, steady state, very predictable. And there was no perceived valuation gap uh, in terms of what they were valued at the moment in time that we bought them. Yeah, and so, Chris, like to speaking to that, that which shows that joining Zynga, some of these companies were able to scale more and to achieve more success. So I wanted to actually go back to your comment about one plus one equals three, because one topic of debate right now is in a sort of decentralized, what Eric is calling city-state model, what are the synergies? And so when you, when you think about a lot of the companies that were acquired by Zynga, and when they're choosing some of these a la carte menu options from Zynga, what, are, what would you say are some of the things that have created the most synergy, have helped these companies achieve their targets to earn those earnouts that you know, created the most value? Sure. It's a great question, Joe. So I would say at, at the most mundane level, but super important is when you think about a, a company like Zynga or any other company that's been around for a long time and, and has invested a lot of its resources and money into building, as I mentioned earlier, the plumbing of a company. So the not sexy, but important part of what makes a company run are you know, everything from kind of the central services to the administrative layer, um, legal, HR, finance, accounting, uh, technology, um, cybersecurity, uh, facilities, all of these things that make a great company run and hum 
are things that emerging companies eventually have to deal with when they get to a certain size. But the vast majority of them, at least the ones that I've spoken to and that became part of Zynga, all they want to do is just make great games. They don't want to have to invest in the plumbing beyond what they've invested in today. So imagine being able to plug into that infrastructure and all you have to do is worry about being a great game studio and hiring local people and that you know that things like provisioning of computers, onboarding of employees, benefits, phones, like all of the administrative stuff, contracts, uh, you know, uh, uh, reporting, payroll, all that stuff is now taken off of your plate that incrementally all takes up bandwidth of you and your leaders. And like, think about Small Giant. There were 35 people when we acquired them. And imagine at a company, if they stayed independent, how much they would have had to reinvest in the plumbing versus reinvesting in the game and in UA, which are the two, you know, and obviously people related to both, which are the, the, the important parts of a business. So the non-sexy stuff is the plumbing, but then the other stuff is just the institutional knowledge, Zynga being a portfolio company that has 10 plus years of data of how games have behaved in both success and failure can, can you know, can uh, uh, avail that pattern recognition to these studios who are doing it for maybe the first or second time. And we know enough about what good looks like and what, what, what things should be concerned about where they may not have that. So that product management, data science, analytics, you know, all of those things, the more sexy game related things were really also important and establishing the rapport and the relationship where we were seen as a trusted partner, seen as, as acting in their interest versus our own. And again, that opt-in, you know, menu, if you will, just made it, made them empowered to feel like it was their decision, which is was, which it was on when they wanted to take advantage of these things. But also, I mean, you gave them blank check for UA, right? To some degree. No, no, not a blank check because remember they, you know, in, in earnout structures, there are, there are, you know, guardrails around what no, needs no, to. No. Sorry, let me rephrase. So yeah. basically you could scale UA to whatever level made sense for the business, right? So they had access to more capital in theory, right? So. No, they only use their own capital. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, it was like you know, they had to manage their own, you know, their own P and L and balance sheet based on you know how the business was going. So they were accountable for their own business unit and could only spend up to you know uh, up to what made sense for them as a business. Now, I, I can't say that there weren't one-off discussions where certain things were 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 you know discussed and agreed to that were just needed on an ad hoc basis. But for the most part, those guardrails. It just it, it seemed like they just got more confident in scaling the business after they were acquired, right? Because the revenue just went. You know, when, yes. when, yeah, so like something happened right, where they were spending more money on UA, whether yeah. it was their own money or, or the comp confidence to do it because they were part of a bigger company, you know, they then, oh, but anyway, okay. Yeah, also, I mean, we, we were helpful in having them, you know, make more informed decisions around their UA tactics and strategies, whereas Small Giant up to that point was very Android heavy. And so we helped them think about, uh, you know, ways to approach, you know, iOS and opened up. You know, when you work, when you're, when you're a company as big as any, you work with, you know, several hundred UA channels, you know, around the world, you know, in any given moment to be able to avail the pricing, even the pricing on the UA is helpful uh, on an enterprise basis versus a one-off studio basis. So those kinds of things become really helpful and then they can test and invest more money in more channels to find more users. And it just kind of, you know, scaled from there. Yeah. And Chris, like, you know, sort of one of the rumors or kind of word on the street is that after Zynga acquires a company, Central might send a team up to kind of share best practices or the, the playbook. And so to what degree, because in, in some studios, there's a very kind of like not invented here, sort of like very closed mindedness. But in your experience, how open have acquired studios been to kind of new practices or adopting some Zynga pr principles or pr practices that are potentially more effective? Yeah. So going back to what we were talking about earlier, again, my understanding of how Zynga operated before was that upon acquisition, they would just parachute people in kind of like an internal affairs group to sit there and monitor and help you know, the situation. Uh, we did not take that approach. Again, going back to what I described earlier, it was very much observational. It was very much opt-in. And, and what, we, what we did was provide observations, feedback loops, um, access to data across the enterprise uh, in, in a way that made made the, the the new addition to the family feel uh, that we were being uh, honest, that we were being forthright, that we were being open, and we were acting in their best interest. And at the end of the day, also we, when we did our homework around culture fit of management teams, it was very important to identify as best we can those folks that we we felt would operate in a collaborative environment, as opposed to just taking the money and giving you the Heisman and saying thanks. Now don't talk to me. Don't don't you know don't come see me. 
but we needed to prove ourselves. So it really wasn't a heavy hand. It was, again, very observational, very much of a recommendation type collaboration and very much information and data sharing so that they saw the proof is in the data and you can't dispute that. And so once we were able to demonstrate enough instances where our observations or recommendations or thoughts were, were proven to be correct, then when they would come back the next time, that would, they would have that in their mind and there would be you know, more, incrementally more legitimacy that was built up over the course of that relationship building. Got it. All right. So the one question that I've actually wanted to ask you, even at Kabam, um, was like, what are the one or two acquisitions just got away that you, sh- that you had an opportunity and you just didn't do it for whatever reason um, that you would like? If, if you could have a do-over, you would do it for sure. So one that I, this is going back to my GameStop days, um, but I pitched the idea to management uh, and you guys may or may not know that there was a, there was a pretty modest history of acquisition there. You know, we bought Congregate, we bought a, a, a streaming game technology, um, we bought a developer, like there was, a, you know, a, a really lower level stuff, but on par with what the company appetite was. But there was a point in time where I, I had a strong opinion about GameStop getting into the uh, publishing business um, because of its relationships with the console manufacturers and with Steam and its ability to create. We, we all know the power of first party exclusive content right now with Microsoft and Sony and Nintendo being the main purveyors of that. But back in the day, you know, it, it wasn't as, as relevant. And, and I, I was advocating for us to go after the THQ asset as it was as it was kind of in trouble um, and going through different, you know, I think eventually filed for bankruptcy and then got bought out by Nordic. But establishing a first party label with an existing workforce, an existing stable of IP that we could then convert into exclusives within this global store footprint and really drive adoption uh, in, in a really special way you know, to the detriment of other retailers at the time. So this was kind of a hybrid retail digital thing. Uh, but but they eventually did a small scale publishing label for indies uh, on, you know, for on right, Xbox, right. Xbox and PlayStation, which didn't, I don't really think amounted to much. But that was one that I really wish that they, they would have had the intestinal fortitude to pull the trigger on. Right. How about at, at Zynga? Anything that we've seen over the last four years that you know, I mean, just for posterity purposes, I really wish that I could have reunited with our old with our old Kabam folks that that became Fox Next. Ah, uh, right. You know, uh, and and you know, kudos to Scopely for for getting that asset. I think you know there was a, you know, for, as a company like Zynga that is public and has to be a lot more transparent about the accretiveness or dilutiveness of of deals. You know, that one had a shining star in Marvel Strike Force, which you and I have our fingerprints on by virtue of having done that licensing deal and helping the studio get up uh, off, the, uh, off the ground. But at the same time, it had a lot of other things that were dragging it down as a, as a total enterprise. And that would have been a harder story for us to sell than a private company that, that doesn't have to be as transparent about what it acquired. Right, uh, right. But love that team. Love Aaron. Love Jason. Love everybody there, uh, Yoko, et cetera. And would have loved to have reunited with them just for my own personal edification. <laughs> well, I will say one. I just wanted to throw this by you. I remember we went Kabam. We looked at Playricks for like pennies on the dollar, right? And that company, before they came out with their big games, and and uh, I remember uh, um, Kevin was like, no fucking way am I going to travel out to the Ukraine and manage a studio in Ukraine, right? I'm yeah. like, and I'm like, now, I mean, it was like, I think it was like 100 million at the time or something really low, like, like yeah. definitely within our wheelhouse. And now it's like worth more than Zynga, right? That is a big consideration, by the way. And I, I'm, you know, I hope you let me go on a little bit of a tangent because one of the things that I firmly believe now in this age of COVID and what the future of work and travel looks like is that um, you know, companies need to set up more distributed uh, management organizations, um, n- not so much to, to, to be the overlords, but just to be present in the geography where a lot of their operations are. If you assume that getting on planes and seeing each other in person is not going to be back to normal for the foreseeable future. And I even believe that for M&A purposes, like I was really nervous about the impacts of COVID on uh, a team like mine at Zynga, where we were all based in the Bay Area. And, and I was believing for the longest time that we needed to distribute that organization so that we could, especially with our track record of having done the majority of deals in the European region, being on the ground there so you can travel on shorter haul flights or by car or by train and being more nimble so that you're not losing out to the good folks at 
Embracer and Stillfront and, and, you know, and, uh, MTG and others, you know, that was, that is going to continue to be more and more important. And I hope that more companies embrace that reality because it's going to be necessary. And I think that to Kevin's point, nobody from, from, from California or the U S wants to travel to the Ukraine on a regular basis, but it would be better to have regional leadership that could do that on your behalf and act as your proxy. So Right. And, and by the way, in, in Kevin's defense, I mean, Ukraine was having issues. <laughs> like, there yeah, was like a war issues. going on. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So like, I mean, I, I I understood. I mean, his point was really well taken at the time, but it was just a, just such a, I don't know. Man, time for, you know, on another podcast, we can talk about my experiences traveling to Ukraine and Belarus and Latvia and understanding how business is done out there. It's a, it's a similar and yet very distinct dynamic from what you hear people talk about when they travel to Asian territories and how business is done. Right. Right. It is, but a lot of this is born out of necessity in terms of the ways you know companies operate and the kind of games that they make, and it's super fascinating. Same thing with India, where Zynga has a huge studio. The the the, the mode of doing business out there uh, for that market is just so markedly different from anything that we experience here. And appreciating those differences is what makes a company uh, more likely to be successful on the global stage. Um, you actually mentioned Stillfront and Embracer, and I just wanted to give you get your quick thoughts on these consolidators. Um, so my, my opinion is that Stillfront is basically getting some decent assets, but Embracer just seems to be picking up, you know, whatever they can find, right? So yeah. I, I don't know. What do you think about the the, the, the future? And, and the valuations are insane. Like these things, stocks are going crazy right now um, because yeah. of the rest of the market as well. So what do you think about the long-term viability of Stillfront and Embracer and, and Consolidator, MTG, you know, just, what did they just acquire recently? Uh, they, they acquired Hutch, the racing. Hutch, uh, right, right, right. Yeah. That, that, that was yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. For a lot of money. That, dude. Sorry. I, I, I know I've been ranting about this for like weeks on this podcast, but Jesus Christ, 225 million for that company. is crazy. It's, it's plus, crazy. Right? Plus, plus the ability plus, to plus earn, the earn out. Like yeah. they make, like racing games that make peanuts, you know, it's, I, I looked at the company before I was like, okay, anyway, but what do you think? Well, about one, thing, you know, one thing this industry has to understand is that, is that, you know, scarcity breeds competition breeds, you know, breeds, you know, uh, increases in valuation because, you know, for better or worse, you know, my time at Zynga, we, 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 you know, the outcome of it is that we kind of started the, the, the charge of the current wave of consolidation in the gaming industry. And I think people understand the importance of scale they understand the importance of you know continuing to fill the pipeline with great talent uh, and looking at it around the world. So I think to your point about Embracer and Stillfront, Alexis and I uh, from from Stillfront had a, a conversation recently. We were both it was a mutual admiration society, as you can imagine, Crest, because like you said, I'm so nice. Uh, but they were you know, they're executing a playbook similar to Zynga's, which is they're taking a, a you know central management and, and a decentralized studio approach uh, and bringing on talent. Uh, at levels that they can afford. And I, yeah, that's important to remember. Not everybody can afford the same things, but you have to start somewhere. And then hopefully there's enough success on those foundations that you can, you know, we, we are a very long way from Puzzle Social, right? Which was a sub $50 million deal going to 2 billion with, with peak, but we needed to get there. And I believe that that's what Embracer and Stillfront, albeit Embracer in a more frenetic way, in that they have to announce all 13 deals on one day. And they use that preceding quarter to line them all up, which is kind of strange to me. But Stillfront is executing at the same playbook, just at, currently at a smaller scale. And their bet is that they're going to continue to be able to do that as success stacks on top of success. But I mean, I, I, I fundamentally feel like this is when the music stops and the impact of COVID and things go back to normal, relative normal for the gaming space, these guys are going to just get destroyed, right? I mean, they're not, they don't have the assets that, that can actually contribute games that that are competitive in the market now still fronts a little bit better than embracer embracer yeah. just bothers me right because they just there's just no market for their content right that i right. can see and their valuations they're buying things at insane valuations um so yeah, i think i think we're in for a reckoning crest to your point on uh in the the, the 2021 comps compared to 2020 um and being having to mark to market year over year based on an unnatural year that was most of 2020 yeah. It's going to be rough for the industry, especially the the, the public markets, the private, obviously less so. Um, you know, and, and you hope that you've gotten enough goodness during the COVID time that you've either re-engaged with enough lapsed people or engaged with enough new people that they're staying with you. But if history is any guide, once things get back to normal, people tend to get back to normal activities, whereas now they have an over overabundance of time to spend on on you know recreation like gaming. So 
2021 is going to be an interesting year from a valuation. Yeah. Uh, Joseph, do you want to move on to the market or is yeah. there anything else yeah. you want to ask? For that, yeah, just wondering, Chris, from your perspective, who else is left out there? Now, certainly there might be some rationalization in 2021, but is there, I mean, if, you, if, you're, if you're one of the consolidators or let's say you're glue and you got Hutch taken out from under you, then like, who's yeah, who prediction was that? The, the, whose prediction was that that the glue was going to buy Hutch? I remember re- hearing that. Uh, I, I think we, I mean, it was several, I, I think we heard it from several different people, but yeah. yeah. It's just no one wants to work at glue <laughs> because it's a fucking terrible place. That's why. They, Come on, Nick's done, Nick's done a great job in getting it to where it is compared <laughs> oh, to where man. it was. That, dude, that, co- that company's just going to collapse upon itself next year. You want to talk about something that someone that's going to have a tough comp <laughs> going forward, right? He's selling I, I, yeah, he's, he's selling uh, the dream. Dude, the guy, let's like, keep it positive. All right, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> because, uh, do you have any names in terms of anyone left remaining out there? Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's funny. When, when we look at our... Uh, our war room and kind of look at the, the, you know, the, the board of names and logos. Um, it's so interesting because on the one hand, you could look at it, quant, you know, from an analytical perspective and just say, who are the top independent companies by charting position, right. By revenue. Um, but then you have to distill down where they are in the life cycle to their company. Have they just raised money? What is the management uh, signaled in terms of their willingness to even engage? Um, so there's the question which you can look at and, who could be acquired or who should be acquired. And then there's who can be acquired. And right. that latter one is usually a lot, lot smaller list, right? Because there are varying <laughs> reasons why companies, you know, don't want to be acquired or aren't ready to be. But if you were just looking strictly on numbers uh, and performance, um, you know, it's hard to ar- ar- uh, argue the, you know, against the coin master guys out in Israel, they're doing some really amazing work. Um, uh, the, the, uh, Lily's garden folks are doing some amazing work out of Copenhagen. Um, and it's, it's, to me, it's always exciting to see new slash emerging companies that are able to break through what is usually a pretty, you know, pretty exclusive club in terms of top grossing and sustain. And so anytime you see something like that, um, you look at Genshin impact. I mean, that thing came out of nowhere and now is just a, a, you know, a, a blitzkrieg of a game. Um, who, who could have predicted that that studio at that moment in time would have captured lightning in a bottle? That's what's really exciting about our business is that you just never know. Just right. when you think that playing field is set, uh, it gets it gets you know it gets disrupted. So uh, I think there are admittedly fewer uh, opportunities to scale, but there's also creative, you know, public to public stuff. There's there's takeouts like what Warner Brothers was thinking, even though that's not on the table now. You're going to see a lot more creative things happening and a lot more different entrants getting into in, into this space. And Chris, just maybe even going back to Kabam, were you there for the acquisition of Exploding Barrel Kabam Vancouver? That was, uh, they had done that just before I got there. So that was on Chris as well. Oh yeah, that was, that that was even, that was more of an aqua hire. That wasn't even really a acquisition. They were really struggling. Yeah. I guess you could argue that, you know, M&A for whether it was for Kabam and and for Zynga has been very transformational, right? Like all the growth at Zynga since since, <laughs> since you got there, Chris, has been all through the M and A. And so I wanted to ask you about that part in terms of like having the nose or you know when you're trying to find companies, what what are you what are you looking for now? It seems like as you mentioned, you've got maybe a, a spreadsheet and you're looking at uh, revenue and things of that nature. But how do you find some of these opportunities, or what specifically are you looking for in, in the companies when you're looking for your targets? Yeah, I mean, it, it all starts with with going back to the framework discussion about you know having alignment internally about what it is that you want to, mm-hmm. what would you like to have, but more importantly, what it is that you don't want so that you can cut out the noise of focusing on things that you know have a very low likelihood of executing. Yeah. And going back to my earlier point about you know the, the predecessor behavior at Zynga on the M&A side, it was really frenetic at the top of the funnel. They would just put in game companies. It was almost like a competition in terms of how many new companies you could engage with at a given time. And even with a more disciplined approach, my team and I would touch two to 300 companies in any given year through a variety of means. Um, and, and imagine if you just kind of were doing three X that, that would be very inefficient because you're just having to, to, to sift through a lot of stuff that ends up being not relevant. So having a disciplined view about what it is that you want and don't want is, is number one. Number two, having people inside the organization that just love to play games. And we empowered everybody throughout the organization from game teams to central to come up, come to myself and my team with observations about games that they were having fun playing 
regardless of platform. Um, and that was always a good, you know, because I had, I had, when I left, it was a team of myself plus three others. You know, it's really hard to cover the world, even from a data driven perspective with just four people. So we rely a lot on the extended organization to bring ideas to the table about studios and games and companies. And then just being out there and talking to folks, talking, uh, uh, to folks like you guys talking to, you know, uh, bankers and advisors talking to, um, you know, leaders and studio heads at conferences and, and other events and just being fans of their games and letting them know that. And, and, uh, you know, I think the, the best leaders of game companies or companies in general are always keeping a good balance between operating the business, which should be the primary focus, but keeping lines of communication open. You know, I can't tell you how many times it's personally frustrating, but also I think frustrating for the, for the founders when they just will refuse to engage, refuse to talk because admittedly and, and understandably, maybe they just got burned in a prior life. But at the end of the day, you never know how the world is going to unfold and what your needs may be. And so, you know, the, the, the mantra of not being a dick, you know, applies here as well, which is, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't really hurt if you manage properly the, the, the interactions with, with folks on the other side of the table. And, and we also, in the course of building those relationships, spend a lot of time Graham and Small Giant were 18-month you know, uh, relationships that were built prior to the acquisition. I know Sadar from after I left GameStop and before I joined Kabam, we were talking about me joining the board of, of Peak at the time. And you know, I went out to Istanbul to meet with him and the team. So I had known him for almost 10 years before we did the deal. So relationship and long game is really key, even though what you'll notice is when we move, we move quickly on deals. Uh, and then that seems like a short game. But the buildup to that is super long. And, and very engaging and full of conversation and storytelling, really just telling the story about what we're looking for, um, you know, hearing their story about what, what they're looking for. And hopefully you find a natural fit uh, that's organic as opposed to trying to force something. That's a long time to seal the deal. You know, you're dancing, 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 right? Yep. <laughs> that's true. Um, Oh, a little known fact. I don't think Chris Petrick plays a lot of games. <laughs> if I remember correctly. Congrats. Come on you, now. You, you, you need other people around you to play the games, right? I am I am level 1364 in Lily's Garden. I've <laughs> topped out at level 150 of Call of Duty Mobile. Um, and I'm also on level, hold on, with the Harry Potter uh, puzzles and spells. Uh, I am level 462. So. All right, all right, all right. Do you have... <laughs> He just flipped me off. Um, uh, all right, moving on. Current right. state of the mobile, or do you want to? Is there right. anything else? Yeah, actually, just and just thinking based upon your experience in terms of like what not to do or lessons learned. Can, could you talk about some of that? Yeah, uh, I love this question because it's it gives me an opportunity to just impart some some words of wisdom to companies, studios, etc. That you know that are eventually at a path or could eventually be acquired at some point, just looking at it from a buyer's perspective. And, and the thing that I always tell folks is that irrespective of whether it's me or somebody else, please be mindful of preparing your company uh, uh, and, and administering it and running it in a professional day, manner from day one. And what I mean by that is have your shit together in the back office, because there's nothing worse to your process, your credibility, the optics of your company than when you end up having those conversations, whether it's, it's investors, board members, or acquirers, and you're handing people, you know, manually generated Excel spreadsheets and Google Drive documents that are incomplete and data warehousing that isn't secure. All these things that I understand that early stage companies have to operate fast and loose because they're moving so quickly, but take the time and surround yourself with people that can help you set up the, the infrastructure of your company and instill best practices Hiring, like you, you can imagine how many early stage companies hire without employment agreements, without documentation and without all the things that you should be doing that is can be outsourced and can be automated at an early stage. So it's not really that laborious. It's just if you don't know about it, you don't know to think about investing in it. So, you know, prep yourself, view yourself as a company that's going to be a billion dollar company and will need to have that infrastructure regardless of what the exit ends up being, if at all. But, but do me a favor and just build the solid foundation of your house early on so that you can be prepared and, and have to be less burdened in the future when you have to retroactively you know, reverse engineer the framework of your company or the infrastructure because you didn't invest in it early. That's one, one piece of advice that I, I, I love. That's sage advice. Sage advice, Mr. Petrovic. Yes. All right. Current state of the mobile industry. Um, you kind of mentioned it. Actually, you mentioned it very specifically is that 
comping this COVID thing in 2021 is going to be a big challenge. And then we have IDFA likely coming in March uh, timeframe is kind of what people are talking about, um, which is happens to coincide with the exact moment in which the market just went nuts, right? Uh, both on mobile and console for that matter. So yeah, what do you think the impact of IDFA is going to have on mobile and like, you know, who's at most at risk and how can you mitigate that risk um, at Zynga yeah. or other com- bigger companies? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously we won't know the full effect until it's out in the wild, right? But there are prognostications all over the place in terms of opt-in rates of users from, you know, 20% up to 80%. And so nobody knows. But one thing I I am encouraged by, and I, I'm, I'm saying this, you know, in, in a abstract way, but, you know, our industry gaming in general, but mobile in particular, because of the nature of the duopoly of the platforms and their ever-changing rules, mobile has had to be so agile and nimble in terms of reinventing itself and adapting to the changing currents and rule sets. And I'm pretty confident that the combination of the developer community and the ad networks are, if for another reason than for self-preservation interest, are going to put their 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 you know brains together to figure out uh, solutions, call them workarounds, call them solutions, um, to mitigate, but not uh, completely eliminate, um, the challenges that are, are going to be coming with IDFA and presumably Google following suit with that. The, the, the good news is if I can say good, maybe in air quotes is that it's going to impact the entire industry. So it's not specific to one company or, 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 or one genre or one geography, maybe on the margin, there may be folks that are more impacted in terms of, uh, people that are in, you know, that rely more on, you know, uh, low DAU, high ARP DAO, so maybe more core games because IDFA and targeting and finding those VIPs is exponentially more important than perhaps the hyper-casual folks that don't rely on IDFA as much. I think publishers with a captive audience uh, in one or more genres that are at scale are going to create their own I- versions of IDFA. I, I think it's called IDFB, where you're kind of tracking users within your publisher uh, portfolio of games. Um, and that can perhaps mitigate both on the buy side and the sell side of advertising. And then diversification. I think you know uh, Zynga is well positioned because it's a highly diversified company, both from a genre perspective within mobile, and then also having the view that I've, I'm really bullish on that segues into kind of what's next for the industry is is the the future potential of cross platform. So um, you know companies that are at scale, companies that have uh, dependable annuity streams and, and audience streams are going to be uh, have that as a foundation to to use as a hedge against the risk. Folks that are smaller in scale, that are maybe all in on one genre, that that are still emerging, um, that that are going to get less smart about how their UA is spent as it continues to get more expensive. I think the mid to long tail is going to be hugely squeezed here in 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 the early days of of this rollout. Yeah, let's talk about cross platform for a moment because um, you know Genshin. First of all, I'm actually a little bit shocked that Zynga hasn't really made any moves in uh, building PC. Other studios outside of mobile, first of all, but uh, or console for that matter. But if I will tell you a, a little little sneak behind the curtain. It's not for lack of trying or being in. Yeah. Process, I can tell you that. Okay, there's been a number of rumors that that things are being worked on. <laughs> well, I mean, even 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 the news that um, you know on uh, that they opened up the uh, Austin studio to work on the Star Wars game, right? So, oh, yeah. um, you know, I, I think look, you look at the management team and where they came from. You look at the developer capacity and the expertise. Yeah. It's it's ripe for you know for building and then eventually buying. So I have no doubt that Zynga is going to continue to be aggressive on that topic because it's it's one that I feel really passionate about and did there and and still do. So um, it's just a matter of finding the right fit because you're ultimately well. Think about this, Chris, and you know this. If if you're trying to like my 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 view when I was looking at company opportunities in this PC console space was to focus on free to play developers. And by definition, there aren't really that many that aren't named Valve that are independent out there, right? Right, right. So by definition, you're already culling down the addressable audience of potential uh, new entrants into your family because combining a free-to-play live service culture with a retail premium culture is oil and water in my mind, right? And so trying to meld those together, some people have different views. And we had those those really healthy debates and discussions at Zynga. But I think when you're trying to you know, bring in capacity and capability to publish and develop games for PC and console, ultimately, if you believe that you as the foundational company, that, that free-to-play is going to be what perseveres as the business model, which I tend to believe, you need to have people in your organization that are building those games with that in mind, because that's what you're going to drive toward in the future. So part of it is just the scarcity of, of, of available 
targets at scale in the free to play AAA world. And right, I think right. that'll just emerge over time because one of the things I'm encouraged about when I talk to VCs that invest in gaming is that they're seeing more and more pitches from studios and leaders that are that are coming to the table with cross platform as their vision. Whether they can execute as TBD, but I'm encouraged to see that that wave is starting to build at the at the early stage, and it's eventually going to bubble up to you know to to the later stage. Yeah, actually, I'm working with uh, Tim Ernst and Daniel Erickson on right. uh, <laughs> Thought Pennies, which is making a uh, RPG uh, you know cross platform. So, That's right. um, all right, so. I guess we're going to have to wrap this up really too soon. So what's next for you, dude? You've done it all, right? You, uh, <laughs> yeah. You've you boiled the ocean for what, 10, 12 years now? Like you've been I mean, 20 years total, but who's counting? Uh, yeah, but in gaming... In gaming, it's been like 15 years. 15 years, 15 years. So you basically know everybody. You know where all the bodies are buried. Um, <laughs> Not and, at the mansion. No bodies at the mansion. <laughs> right. And I don't even want to talk... So I can't even imagine what happened at the mansion, but uh, but we'll, we'll, maybe that's for another time off right. off off the mic. Um, but so what's next? Like, what do you, what do you want to do? Do you uh, going to go back to work at EA, go for the Borg, or... I've never worked at EA, so you can't say go back to work. Okay. Uh, but I mean, go back to a big company is what I kind of meant to say. But. Yeah, no, you know, I, I, you know, as you guys may have read, you know, I, I, I posted my, my kind of open letter about why I left and it had nothing to do with Zynga or the merits of the job or the company. It was really just a personal decision to, uh, to try and refactor the, the, the setup of our family. Uh, and, and, you know, we're getting out of California as of this Saturday. Um, you know, good timing. Uh, Taxes are going up to like 18% or something nutty, right? Freaking right. Gavin Newsom, dude. It's crazy. Right. I mean, you know, so all those things that came into our consideration. So I'm just taking the rest of the year off to focus on that and focus on the holidays. And then, you know, come the new year, um, I don't know, maybe you guys will need a, you know, an associate producer here on the show. <laughs> <laughs> you got to think a lot of the Chinese companies are going to come after you, Chris. <laughs> Depending on I don't know what that means. I don't really know what that means. But hopefully that <laughs> no, no, but like, but net ease, bite dance, you know? Yeah, I mean, would you... Uh, we got Biden as president now, so... <laughs> Yeah, right. Biden. Yeah, there'll be a. Yeah. Anyway, do you, so like, yeah. Does that sound interesting to you to go do something for Tencent or Netties or something and and be their guy? Yeah, I think I think I'm gonna you know just like I did when I went from GameStop to to Kabam. I think one of the things that I've settled on in my mind is I, I want to take a, a little bit of a break from the public market. Um, I've been really blessed to have had a number of conversations from really great companies in that sphere um, yeah. to talk about potential potential ways to work together, but. Um, I'd say for right now, it's 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 going to be uh, not in the public uh, realm. If, if if I have my druthers, and, and, but uh, and we've talked about this before, so I apologize if I'm. We can cut this out if you don't want to talk about. It, but do you want to do more of an operating role as opposed to corp dev? Like, do you want to like run a company? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think you know, just the totality of my 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 history is much more than just transactions. And I think you know, I came into. Kabam and Zynga for at a very opportunistic time for myself and the company when they were, I, I saw, I already kind of in my, in my most optimistic of, of filters saw what the future foretold for those companies. And it turned out that it, you know, there was, there's been success on both ends, but it was never the extent of my, my desire, you know, from being an entrepreneur back in the late nineties to operating businesses and investing and doing deals. Like I, I've had the good fortune of having quite a ride that has allowed me to do a, a lot of different things, but operating and being accountable and, and steering the ship. Those are things that are really interesting to me. And I think there's a lot of great companies in gaming and, and, and beyond, um, that, that may be able to benefit from, from having me, you know, be an oarsman there. All right. Well, I have one last question from my side. So you mentioned Lily's garden. Yes. Word on the street, tactile, that name's being thrown around like crazy. <laughs> so there's a lot of buzz, but nothing, you know, we don't see anyone pulling the trigger. Where does tactile wind up in your opinion? I, th I think, you know, as Borgen and his team have just built an amazing company, um, you know, again, nobody would have seen them coming, but for, except for themselves, I think they had the confidence to go after a market and take inspiration from some of the things that were working uh, in that category and build on it, both from a game design and also from a UA perspective. Uh, you know, knowing, knowing him uh, as I do, um, you know, I think that they're going to continue to be heads down. I think they want to prove that they can build more than one successful game. And they want to leave a longstanding legacy for themselves, for Denmark, uh, for the games industry in that part of the world. And I don't think he needs to worry about what is the outcome for him because it'll become self-evident, you know, as 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 he continues to be successful. So, I I would 
I would love nothing more than to be involved in, in his business. And I've told him many times, uh, but to his credit, you know, one thing I admire about him, like many founders is that they're really true to their North star. And his North star is to build a, a great games company that has proven itself over and over again. So I think that's going to take a while. Uh, and they're work well capitalized and they're, you know, they, they have great uh, folks uh, there and around the world. And I think they're going to continue to do great things. For Denmark. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for uh, coming on. Um, My pleasure, I, guys. Had a blast. Been a I long had, uh, admirer of this podcast. So it's great to finally, uh, finally get on it. And uh, I'm hoping Zynga will continue its reign and, and continue to have success. But There's I get nothing a little else bit... so that it can prove you right. Continue to prove you right. Well, I'm actually, in, in all honesty, I'm not really too bullish on Zynga right now. <laughs> not because you left, but because IDFA, I think, is going to destroy them in some in a lot of ways. And I think it's they are not prepared, as far as I understand it. But I don't. I wasn't going to talk about that with you. Um, but anyway, thanks again for coming. Uh, uh, very interesting. I wish you the most success in what you do next. I, I could see you as a CEO for sure. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, thanks, thanks again. Buddy. I appreciate that. Thanks, guys. Have a great holiday, and we'll we'll catch up in the new year. All right. Sure. Bye.